You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with P.J. O'Rourke. This program originally aired in 2014. This is a terrific band, but you can tell that they're not, they're not a real 60s band because their drummer isn't dead. Not yet, not yet he says. <laughs> okay, talking about our generation. I can't see you out there, but I have a feeling that none of you are 16. We are the generation that changed everything. Of all the eras and epochs of Americans, ours is the one that made the biggest impression on ourselves. (laughs) But that's an important accomplishment because we're the generation that created the self, made the firmament of the self, divided the light of the self from the darkness of the self, and said, let there be self. Before us, self was without form and void, like our parents in their dumpy clothes and vague ideas. Then we came along. So here we are uh, in the baby boom cosmos, formed in our image, personally tailored to our individual needs, and predetermined to be eternally fresh and novel. And we saw that it was good. Or pretty good. I mean, we should have had a cooler name. Anyway, it's too late. Uh, we were, were stuck with being described as exploding infants. Maybe it is time now that we have splattered ourselves all over the place uh, uh, for the baby boom to look back and think what made us who we are, what caused us to act the way we do, and as the kids say, WTF. <laughs> the youngest baby boomers, born in the last year when anybody thought it was hip to like Lyndon Johnson, are turning 50. Uh, We'd be sad about getting old if we weren't too busy remarrying younger wives, reviving careers that hit glass ceilings when the kids arrived, and renewing prescriptions for drugs that keep us from being sad. (laughs) Still, you know, I had a little problem um, when I was writing this book, and, and that was trying to talk about the whole baby boom all at once. I mean, to address America's baby boom is to face big broad problems. We number more than 75 million, and we're not only diverse, but we take a thorny pride in our every deviation from the norm, even though we're in therapy for it. Uh, We're all alike in that we each think that we are highly unusual. Fortunately, we are all alike uh, in our approach to big, broad problems. We won't face them. Uh, There's a website for that, a support group to join, a class to take, or we can eliminate gluten from our diet. Um, (laughs) History is full of generations that had too many problems. We are the first generation to have too many answers. So, to the the problem of talking about the baby boom, let us turn our big, broad, and yet soon to be firmed up, thanks to the triathlon for seniors we're planning to enter, generational backsides. However, I still had a difficulty. Still, a difficulty remained for me, which is, you know, most groups of people who get tagged by history as a generation, uh, they can be described in an easy, offhand way. Folks sort of the same age, experiencing sort of the same things in sort of the same place. But unlike most generations, uh, the baby boom has an exact demographic definition. Uh, we are the children who were born during a, a period after World War II when the long-term trend in fertility among American women was exceeded. Now, this excess began promptly in 1946 when the boys got home from the war, 
and it gradually tapered off until in 1964, uh, American women were taking the pill or rolling over and pretending to be asleep or telling their husbands to go phone the Pope about where to buy rubbers. <laughs> Now, 46 to 64 is it's a long time. Um, uh, distinctions among ver various different kinds of baby boomers need to be made. Now, now geographical distinctions would moot uh, uh, for us. We, we moved around too much. Uh, distinctions according to race, class, gender, or sexual orientation would be offensive to baby boom sensitivities. And it occurred to me, since we're the generation that refused to grow up, the perfect way to sort us is by high school class. The baby boom senior class, baby boom senior class, born in the late 40s, I'm a, I'm a senior. We seniors, uh, we were on the bow wave of the baby boom's voyage of exploration. But we were also closely tethered uh, in the wake of the preceding generation, the greatest generation. So in effect, the senior class of the baby boom was keel-hauled by the baby boom experience, you know, dragged under the hull, left a bit soggy and shaken, you know. And so uh, to put it simply, uh, Hillary Clinton and Cheech of Cheech and Chong are both members of the baby boom senior class. <laughs> now the junior class, baby boom junior class, they were born in the early and middle 50s. Now they were often younger siblings of the seniors, and they came of age uh, when their parents were just throwing in the towel, you know. Mom, mom and dad had had it with all the screaming at the dinner table, and they just gave up, you know. So the junior class of the baby boom got to pursue the notions, the whims, and the fancies of the baby boom with an even greater intensity. Uh, for them, drugs were no longer experimental. Drugs were proven, you know. Um, now the sophomore, the sophomore class of the baby boom, they were born in the late 50s. By the time they reached adolescence, the, the, the baby boom ethos had, had permeated society. In a sophomore class, they, they, they gladly accepted sex, drugs, and rock and roll and the deep philosophical underpinnings thereof. You know? But they had seen enough of the baby boom in action to realize that what works in general terms doesn't always work when the bong sets fire to the beanbag chair. <laughs> Then there comes, and to my mind, the most interesting part of the baby boom, the freshman class, born in the early 1960s. Now, the freshman baby boomers, they felt no visceral effects from the events that formed the baby boom. I mean, to the freshmen, the, the Vietnam War was just something that was inexplicably on TV all the time, like Ed McMahon, you know, I mean, and Martin Luther King was a day off from work, you know, I mean, they just didn't get it, you know. The freshmen see, take the baby boom BS as a given. Now, my favorite uh, uh, freshman baby boomer is our president. And I say that without irony, even though he and I don't agree about a lot of political things. I think he seems like a, a, a good guy. And he, he was born right at the tail end of the baby boom. And there is a wonderful example of his being a frosh baby boomer. Uh, you may well remember there was a, a kerfuffle about the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, the pastor at, at the church the Obamas went to. Uh, Reverend Wright's a man of, how shall I put this, um, strong views, strongly put. <laughs> and the Reverend Wright, like I said, he was the pastor at, at, at Senator Obama's church. Uh, he had married Barack and Michelle. He baptized their children. Well, the Republican Party and outraged conservatives and Fox TV and the right-wing media screaming on talk radio, I mean, it's went nuts over this, you know. They were determined to turn Reverend Wright into a major scandal that would end Barack Obama's political career forever. 
What did happen? Story just sort of petered out, you know. Why? Well, because of us, the baby boom. We realized perfectly well that while the Reverend Wright was thundering from the pulpit, Senator Obama was paying absolutely no attention at all. He's sitting in a back pew on his Blackberry with Rahm Emanuel, you know. I mean, everything Reverend Wright had to say went right past his head, you know. Now, see, my part of the baby boom, the senior class, we would have been standing on a pew, you know, clenched fists in the air, you know, shouting right on and demanding property vandalism at the nearby University of Chicago, you know. Junior baby boomers, assuming they were awake in time to go to church, they would have been sitting there and nodding in stoned agreement and hoping the church's social outreach program included free lunch. The sophomore baby boomers, they would have been thinking, well, gosh, Reverend Wright, I don't know, that might be pitching it a little high to the inside, you know. But President Obama, freshman baby boomer, he didn't even notice, you know, because it's all BS, you know. See, I foresee a day when all the world's noxious politics will disappear because all the world's political science classes will happily degenerate into hour-long BS shouting matches the way my baby boom political science class did in 1968. We were shouting at each other about the war in Vietnam, but I can't remember why we were shouting at each other. The students were against the war. The professors were against the war. The custodial staff was against the war, you know? But that didn't keep us from shouting at each other, you know? Why? Because we were having fun, you know, just like the Democrats and the Republicans are having fun in Washington right now, you know? You know, the baby boom doesn't have noxious politics. Communism, fascism, Islamist fanaticism, baby boom doesn't really have any politics at all. We've had three baby boomer presidents so far. We've got Hillary Clinton waiting in the wings, maybe four, you know? But the three we've got so far, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. Now, you map these three guys out politically, and you have to go to Pyongyang to find somebody who's more different politically from them than they are from each other, you know? So I have a message for all the dictators and the despots and the autocrats and the oligarchs who rule the worst countries on earth. You, you will turn into baby boomers, too. It shall rain on your woodstock. You shall spend your treasure on disco, cocaine, and rehab. You shall form overage garage bands and try play playing Margaritaville. Your, your third spouse shall acquire an American Express black card with a credit limit higher than the U.S. deficit. Your daughters shall wear nose rings. Your sons shall have pagan symbols indelibly marked upon their necks. You shall be perplexed by the Internet. You shall grow old and adult enough to vote for Ron Paul in a presidential primary. There is no escape from happiness, attention, affection, freedom, irresponsibility, money, peace, opportunity, and thinking it's all BS. Behold the baby boom, ye mighty, and despair. But I, I, I want to take issue, actually, on that. The book isn't a memoir. It contains memories, but it's not a memoir, because a memoir is all about how different I am from you. And what I was looking for was things that we almost all, or almost all, or as many of us as possible, have in common. 
Things that would make people say, oh, can I remember that? Or, oh, yeah, that's how it was. That's, that's not how people say it was, but that's how what really was at the time. What I was really trying to do was use a little yeast from my memory to put in the bread dough of other people's memories so that we would all have a great big rising lump of memory. You know, so. But there are so many things that made me think, yes, that's what happened. That's what happened in the suburbs when we were kids, the kind of games that we used to play. In fact, you trace some of our political or, or our temperament to some of those games. Uh, like Arguing the political... about the rules. <laughs> Well, and the political impasse in Washington is really rooted in playing Mother May I. <laughs> there, there is an element to that, which it is, uh, I always cheated, uh, <laughs> Mother May I. And then also financial policy, both at a government level and a, at a private level. Because, you know, we all played Monopoly. You know, Monopoly was the rainy day game. You know, well, any board game was the rainy day game, but if it looked like the rain was going to go on forever, we'd get out the Monopoly board. But, but none of us ever read the rules. And then we'd always lose the Monopoly money, which is like totally where Fed policy came from, you know. <laughs> well, so just make up some new Monopoly, uh, Monopoly money. So, you know, you know, by the time that we had like nine hotels on Baltic, you know, I mean, we had lost all track of what we were doing. And modern life, in a nutshell. Well, took some risks, you know, yeah. as you write. We were never going to be a splendid generation by doing harmless things. I'd love to hear about some of the ways that you got your kicks as a kid. Oh, gee. You know, uh, um, you know it was pretty much standard issue, driving too fast while drinking, you know, <laughs> with no hand on the wheel because of the girl, the hands I was trying to get on, you know, marijuana when I could find it. You know. um, no, it was pretty much... Standard issue, but I don't think you know. I, oddly enough, I don't think we're a great. Uh, one of the things that keep us from being a splendid generation, and I'm, I'm so glad we're not, is that we didn't face splendid challenges. We didn't face the depression. We didn't face World War II. We didn't face World War One. Thank God. Um, we did face Vietnam, and, and and all my admiration goes out to the guys that uh, went and, and fought that war. But let's face it, lots of us didn't. You know. I was right down there with a sheaf full of asthma letters, you know, and uh, uh, actually I had had a doctor who had been a captain medical corpsman in in Vietnam, and he came back really, really opposed to the war and opposed to anybody going to the war, and he gave me a great letter about my history of drug abuse. It was about (laughs) a six-page letter, and four and a half pages were devoted to listing the drugs I'd abused. (laughs) And... uh, I ended up with the – they sent me to the Army psychiatrist, and the Army psychiatrist, like, he reads this letter and he keeps backing his chair away. <laughs> and so he keeps reading this letter. Finally, he's standing up behind his chair, and he says, you're f***ed up. <laughs> I had no idea psychiatrists were allowed to say anything like that. Well, before the drug use, you had a childhood of typical of kids growing up at that time – safe, stable environment, no big wars going on for the most part, um, relative prosperity. And that, I guess, left a lot of people obsessed with the self and with change, as you point out. Well, what happened to the baby boom is like a gigantic social experiment. Um, kidding around a lot in this book, but I actually did do some research. You know, I try not to shove it in people's faces in the books uh, uh, because nobody likes research. But, you know, I did some research on it, like, like median family income, not average family income, because average gets skewed top and bottom. Well, the median family income for families when the baby boom was growing up was $10,000 higher than the median family income for the greatest generation. 
in, in inflation-adjusted dollars. And not only that, but the, but the, uh, the economy, if you look at, the, uh, at GDP per capita, the economy from World War II until really until the Arab oil embargo is just a steady upward ramp. So you've got this atmosphere of prosperity and confidence. If you look at the uh, GDP per capita during the greatest generation's childhood, it's all over the place. It goes up with World War I. It goes, there's a brief but, but deep uh, recession. It goes way up in 1929, then comes way down with the Great Depression, then comes back up when we start to rearm. I mean, not only did they not have $10,000 less per year per family, but they also had this incredible instability. And so we were like, world historical terms, we were the first generation to ever experience, you know, kind of middle class prosperity, stability, and all sorts of like social norms like marriage had not yet gone out the window, you know, so we had like two parents, you know, and, and, and this good family income. So this is what you get. We're what you get. Um, when kids are raised under those um, ideal by, by, by world historical standards. So. so in the book, there's a lot of questioning about what have we wrought, you know, what is the legacy of the boomers. But how about our parents? How about the greatest generation? They're the ones who kept us safe and protected and gave us three square meals. Well, one thing that I found out, uh, I don't say find out exactly, but one thing that began to be clear to me as I was reading about all this and, 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 and trying to get this book in, in book form was to what extent the, the baby boom were acting out feelings and impulses and indeed to some degree the behavior of the greatest generation. The reason that there were these terrible fights at the dinner table especially during the 60s, between the greatest generation, the Archie Bunker, you know, and Meathead, you know. The reason that the, those, those fights were was not because these two, two groups of people had a radically different worldview. It was because there's nothing more annoying than seeing somebody with the opportunity and indeed the nerve to do all the stuff that you wanted to do but you were constrained from doing or didn't have the guts to do or felt like you would go to hell if you did, you know. It was the greatest generation that really gave up on a certain kind of, uh, of conventional religion. I mean, they still went through the forms for the most part. They would, they, would, they would go to church. But there was a certain skepticism about religious orthodoxy among the greatest generation. And after what happened in World War II, how could you possibly blame them for, for having some, some, some areas of doubt? Sexual revolution in World War II made a big, big difference. I mean, if you think those couples kissing each other goodbye hadn't been doing something else about half an hour before, I mean, you're nuts, you know. I mean, it really changed the mores, you know. Our parents didn't know about drugs, but they knew about one drug, alcohol, and they knew so much about that drug that I'm willing to count it as knowledge of all the other drugs, you know. It was, the, it was that, that, that Freudian thing of, uh, of arguments of small difference, you know. And those shouting matches, uh, you later point out, have kind of been eliminated by Google. Well, no, that's bar arguments that have been eliminated. I mean, when was the last time you heard a good bar argument, you know? Stan Musial did not play second base for me because somebody's got their damn phone out, you know, and they're like, you know, <laughs> finding out. Is right. So something no, can't I, even I, be I think surmounted by the, Google. Uh, uh, the, the, the dinner table argument settled out uh, um, basically when, um, uh, I, I, I don't know, I mean, there was just a, a, a some, somewhere along in there, peace was declared between the, uh, 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 between the generations. Uh, 
I, I really do, as I was saying when I was talking about the junior class of the baby boom. I think that uh, our parents kind of threw in the towel and said, oh, what the hell, you know? And, and people began to want safety and security, I guess, in their own lives. And, and one of the things that comes through in the book is how safety-obsessed we are now, that we want security, obviously, for our kids, you know, that... Safety is inconsistent with the baby boom, like hearing The Clash performing Gilbert and Sullivan at the Nixon Library. It is. It's weird how, uh, what, what helicopter parents we turned into. Now, our parents were careful, too. They were extremely worried about But, they, 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 you know, it's like they, with, well, with the war and the Depression and all the rest of that, uh, all the social changes that they were going through, the changes in the American economy, it's like they didn't have time for the kind of generalized uh, anxiety uh, that we're so familiar with. They, they just picked certain things to worry about. And for, as for the rest of the things, you know, they'd have a couple of extra pops, you know, for the road to take, drive the family home and turn us loose in the backyard with lawn darts, you know, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Let us ride our bikes in traffic. You know, on the other hand, like, you know, they would also, like, be extremely worried about money and the savings account, and they were, like, careful to lock all the doors at night, even though if you lived in a place, you know, that nobody could even find, let alone, you know, it was going to break into your house. But I think one of the reasons that the baby boom turned into such, um, you know, weenies as parents uh, was that we scared ourselves. Uh, We know uh, what happens when you have total freedom. Um, We know what what, what can go wrong. The other thing is that, unlike our parents, we haven't grown up. So when we look at our kids, we know exactly what they're thinking, you know? (laughs) And we're going, no, you're not. Not on your life. How do you talk to your kids about drugs or... I lie. (laughs) I just lie, you know. Dad never, ever, ever touched drugs. Drugs are evil and bad. I lie. And I learned this from a friend of mine who is about the same age as I am, but he has older children. So his kids got to be teenagers before mine when mine were still little. And I I asked him, and when his kids were were teenagers, uh, he's a, 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 a friend and a fellow writer, and... um named Andy, and I said, uh, Andy, what, what do you tell um, your kids about drugs? And I, t- I told him, he said, I, 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 I lie. I tell him I never took drugs. Drugs are evil. Drugs are bad. They point to the picture over there with me with my hair all over the place, and I said, yes, I was in a band, but we played at folk masses. <laughs> and I said, Andy, uh, you've written about doing drugs. And Andy said, the only people on the face of the earth you can absolutely trust to never read a word you've ever written is your children. So I just lie. But things are getting around. Here's a question from Amy. She says, as a generation, we are embracing social media, especially Facebook, at stunning rates. How do you explain this longing for connection among boomers? I don't know. I I can't figure out the thing at all. Um, I, I honestly can't, you know, I, I can Google stuff, you know, and I can use the word, sort of use Microsoft Word, although I hate it. Obviously done by, like, members of the math club trying to get back at me for locking them in their lockers <laughs> in high school. No actual writer ever touched Microsoft Word. But, uh, no, I, I, I don't know. Are we? I guess, I guess, I guess we're, we're, we're getting around this stuff. We sort of invented this stuff. Because, you know, when we came along, we didn't invent computers, obviously, but when we came along, computer was the size of a house, you know, needed its own air conditioning machine, had punch cards and big tapes and stuff, and we got, oh, man, we can make this thing small and cool and use it for something. But at least the older members of the baby boom, you know, have never quite figured out use it for what. 
So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I feel no particular need to reach out myself and kind of wish other people would quit reaching out themselves, <laughs> especially children asking for money. Well, the boomers were involved, at least, in, in bringing computers to everyone's home, but as you mentioned, didn't invent them, nor did they integrate the army, nor did they, for the most part, play at Woodstock. A lot of the musicians who played at Woodstock were a part of the greatest generation. Oh, totally true. Uh, Baby Boom tends to get credit for all sorts of things that, 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 that should, has no reason to take credit for. I would say personal computers, we can take credit for that. That very much was our age cohort that got that thing going. But Civil Rights March, forget about it. You know, we were barely old enough to follow the Civil Rights, mar uh, rights leaders, let alone lead the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, women's Liberation, Gloria Steinem was born in 1936. Uh, rock and roll, uh, every member uh, of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones was born before 1946, which is, the, you know, the beginning date uh, of the baby boom. Um, even, even the gay rights movement was led by people uh, older than we are. What we did was internalize those things. We didn't lead the movements. We didn't, we didn't do the really courageous stuff. We didn't do the heavy lifting. But what we did was we took the lesson to heart. I mean, if you think about the kind of casual racism, casual anti-Semitism, casual homophobia that was rife in every conversation, I mean, among perfectly respectable adults, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Whoa, whoa, 50 years ago, you know. It isn't gone, but it is greatly, greatly diminished. And it's greatly diminished because of us, because we took the lessons to heart. And um, I think that's important. Uh, you know, it's not heroic. Like I say, we're not a heroic generation. And that's because we haven't faced heroic challenges. And I'm so glad for us that we haven't. But, you know, there, there is something uh, um, um, to be... Uh, we are to be congratulated as a, as a generation for making it happen. Why do you think the boomers then get so much credit to be liberators, as sort of helping people free themselves from... Well, because of our amazing ability with BS. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've basically talked everybody into thinking that. Now that we're of an age where we control the media, ha-ha, who's going to tell us no? No. <laughs> Well, this is something that runs through the book as you're talking about the greatest generation, this idea that the history and the lives of our parents were so boring and uninteresting and ours are so interesting. And I wonder if there's any kind of parallel here with how we look at millennials. Is this just a generational thing that you get to the point where you, you are shaking your head and saying kids these days? Well, you know, I think it's more than how the millennials look at us, which I'm sure is exactly the same way. I mean, every generation invents sex. I mean, we invented sex, right? If you don't think that that's true, try thinking about your parents having sex. <laughs> Can't be done, you know? We actually were found under cabbage leaves. <laughs> and when millennials look at us, they think the same thing, you know? So it's just, you know, I think every generation does that. It's part of separating yourself from your parents is to, in a way, dehumanize them a little bit, especially when, you know, you're in your your teens and your 20s, and, and uh, you know, making them sort of boring cardboard cutouts and, 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 and predictable conformists and so on was our particular. I don't know how the millennials dehumanize us, but I'm sure that they do. You know, I mean, we're, you know, I, I'm Uncle Fumble Thumbs. You know, I'm, you know, <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. <laughs>
just getting back, but you knew I would. War is hell. When will it end? I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with P.J. O'Rourke. It's a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. P.J. O'Rourke's newest book is called The Baby Boom, How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again. Its cascading subtitles give some clues into P.J.'s transformation from collegiate hippie to conservative commentator, or as The Guardian called him, the right-winger it's okay for lefties to like. But back in the day, he was a radical, and one of his first writing jobs was for an underground newspaper in Baltimore. At least that is one of the things that they were doing. No, what we were printing, you know, we were testing waterbeds. And, um, and uh, I, I know, you know, anti, anti-war, anti-capitalist rants uh, in between a lot of hippy-dippy nonsense and, uh, uh, and, and bad collages by cute girls. You know, you ran them because girls cute. Uh, it was just junk. You know, underground newspaper. Yeah, it was an underground newspaper. I mean, we, we, wasn't, we weren't doing anything illegal. Uh, uh, well, we were, you know, but it didn't have anything to do with the newspaper, you know, <laughs> periodically. Anyway, we apparently weren't left-wing enough, and we got raided. Uh, this was down in, this was in Baltimore, where, where I was in grad school. We got raided uh, one night, not by the police, but by a group of, of, of people who thought they were much more left-wing than we were, uh, who called themselves, and I am not kidding about this, they called themselves the Balto Kong, as in... <laughs> as in Viet Cong. And they had, like, sticks and knives and stuff and, like, uh, fists and, like, they, 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 and they said they're liberating the newspaper for, for, for the people. And we said, well, that's interesting because the newspaper at the moment consists of this, like, old row house that we're about four months behind on the rent and uh, about two typewriters and uh, an unpaid loan to, to, to uh, one of the guys who started its mother of about $4,000. And you're welcome to all that, you know. Well, you... Transformed, you know. I'm, I'm wondering what the P.J. O'Rourke of that day would think of the P.J. O'Rourke you sitting here now. Well, I'm 66. You know, the, the P.J. of that day would I would be invisible. You know, it's the same way I'm in, uh, invisible to millennials. You know, I mean, I just you know, I mean, I would just be another square out there in Squaresville. You know, but I think you know that the, even at the at, at, at the height of that sort of 60s nonsense. There was a little side of us, uh, almost all of us, those that weren't absolutely stoned out of their gourd, you know, that had a kind of like, you know, you know, we, we always knew that we were living in a, in a sort of Peter Pan world and that Wendy was going to take a powder, you know. And, and, of course, we all know, I mean, we're, we're all, uh, we, we all know people who stayed at the ball too long, you know. <laughs> it's not pretty. Yeah, I have that sense reading this that, you didn't go to Woodstock for very good reasons. Um, you didn't go to Vietnam for very good reasons. And well, I don't know about very good reasons. Or I mean, you, you, you had a good enough reason, let's put it that way. I don't think I out. did, really, to tell the truth, because that's one of the things i, I got to say. I, you know, I look back on the enormous selfishness. Uh, there is a selfishness in, in our generation. And it, like I say, most of the time it manifests itself in a fairly harmless way. But in Vietnam, you know, it was zero sum. I didn't go because... Uh, I didn't have to go um, because I knew people. That meant somebody else had to go for me. And there was a moment, but just a moment, in my draft physical. I'm standing there, and there's a whole bunch of us in our, in our shoes and socks and underwear. And you looked at that group of people. It was just gathered from all over Baltimore. And some of us had, like, gold toe over the calf 
uh, 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 socks and boxer shorts. And some people were wearing the kind of socks you get in the bag from Walmart, you know, and the Hanes, tidy whities that come up over your navel. And uh, and the guys with the uh, with the gold toe socks and the uh, and the and the boxer shorts all had a big fat Manila envelope under their arm, which is from the doctor, mm-hmm. you know. And the guys in the uh, in discount store socks and the uh, and the Hanes over your belly button did not have big fat Manila envelopes from their doctors. And like I had a little moment there where I go, ooh, this is like you know I I I I I think I'm this big left winger, you know, and I think I just actually just saw a class divide that I you know I sort of like knew about theoretically, but I think I just saw one in real life. But of course, I was so intent on not getting drafted, you know, that that uncomfortable little thought passed out of my mind as quickly as I could make it. It wasn't until years later that it sort of came back to me with a kind of ickiness, and I thought, you know. The only thing that kept me from really feeling guilty about that is knowing how perfectly useless, to the point of being really dangerous, I would have been to a combat unit in Vietnam. You know, they had me along, you know, they'd all be dead, you know. So, so what happened to you? I mean, the, this boomer promiscuity and permissiveness and protesting that especially people in conservative circles often disparage. Why conservatives especially, do you think? Oh, well, I got a job. That's what turned me into a conservative. Um, uh, it did. Uh, I got a job. I got a job as a messenger in New York. Paid $75 a week. We got paid every two weeks. And I was really looking forward to that 150 bucks, as was my landlord. And I got my first paycheck, and I netted out like 8650 You know, after federal tax and state tax and local tax and Social Security and like uh, – uh, the health fund, union dues, you know, pension fund deductions. I netted out about 86, 86 and change. And I go, wait a minute, I'm a communist. I've been screaming and yelling for communism. I've been demonstrating for communism and writing for communism. I'm a communist, and I finally I get a job with a big capitalist corporation, and I find out we've got communism already. They just took half my money. <laughs> WTF, you know? <laughs> Does any part of you mourn that independent, that self-guided, self-serving spirit? Well, no more than any, you know, everyone mourns being 19. You know, everybody would be like, like, like to be 19 forever. Of course, if you could put yourself back into having teenagers myself now, I realize that only a real moron would ever actually go through adolescence again. You know, I mean, you know, it's, you know. But uh, uh, no, I mean, no, it's... Uh, uh, um, you, you know, it was it was fun. You know, so, you know, if you really, really, really have fun, and I really, really, really did, you don't have to have it again. Once is enough. You know? <laughs> and you, you know, because you you kind of like you know, there's this like a fund of fun, and you use it up. You know? and there's there's, uh, there's a, a great uh, a writer uh, who wrote the uh, a best little whorehouse in Texas. Larry King. King, Larry King, but not Larry L. King, not the Larry King that was on radio and television. Uh, uh, Larry L. King. And Larry L. King says that at birth, that every guy at birth is issued a swimming pool full of booze, a wheelbarrow full of cocaine, and a prom night full of women. And when you've run through them, you're done. <laughs> 
Okay, random question. Why does most 70s music suck so bad? Why does most 70s music suck so bad? Because 70s drugs were so good. <laughs> we do have a couple things that are somewhat current. Um, as a former Miami Redskin, you went to Miami University. I was. I went to Miami of Ohio. What is your POV on the Native American mascot hullabaloo? Um, my point of view on the Native American mascot, well, as long as they've, I've got the little mick uh, at Notre Dame with a fighting Irish, you know, hang <laughs> on, you know. When they change that, then I'll get worried about other people, you know. Um, so you've made the point that the world is our fault. What is it that the baby boom should take responsibility for? Well, it isn't what we should take responsibility for. It's just that once you're over 50, you have responsibility for it. You know, you own it, usually literally, and the kids want to borrow it, you know. And, uh, it's, you know, so it's just, uh, it just you know, there isn't any particular thing that we should or shouldn't be doing. We just don't, we won't really have a choice, you know. Uh, it's in our hands, for good or for ill. Well, speaking of the over 50 set, you do have a theory that I found very interesting about how El Chapo, the notorious head of the Sinaloa cartel, was actually captured in Mazatlan. Yes, uh, uh, he turned 50. AARP found him. <laughs> same, same thing happened to Osama bin Laden. It's, uh, you know, I can find you anywhere. You know. <laughs> there are some things that really struck me about um, the emotional lives of the baby boomers that, that comes across in your book. And something that struck me in particular, you said, we failed to keep our eyes on our sense of shame. Well, it is an interesting uh, uh, thing, the way shame has changed. Uh, there are all sorts of things that people used to be ashamed of. Some of them, of course, uh, is quite rightly uh, 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 we're no longer ashamed of. In fact, we're proud of. Um, but people also used to be ashamed of things like being divorced, ashamed of having illegitimate children. Um, now, I'm not for, like, reinstituting some sort of a Mormon shunning of this, but I think we do have to ask ourselves whether, whether our conscience shouldn't bother us maybe a little bit more than it does about some of our behavior when it affects other people. We aren't even ashamed of, uh, of taking drugs. Uh, uh, somebody that I know that had a bad drug problem and managed to get over it told me uh, how much she hated the idea of sort of celebrity druggies, you know, people who had been through terrible drug problems. When they got their problems straightened out, they would go speak to high schools and, and, and colleges, telling the kids basically not to, to say, say, oh, I had a wonderful life as a sports star or a movie star or whatever it was, or a, great, a musician, and then I just let drugs ruin my life, you know. And then I had to go through this, like, whole, like, cleansing process. I really learned a lot about myself during that, you know, and now I've been straight for 10 years or 12 years or 15 years, whatever it is. Basically, she said the message you're sending to kids there is, hey, it's all right to, to take drugs. I'd be rich and famous, have a big time. And then, like, I really dramatically get to blow it. And then, like, I get famous again, and I talk to high school kids. And, she, you know, she said that, 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 that 
so, you know, sense of shame plays an important part in society, and we got rid of a lot of our sense of shame, much of that shame misplaced. Uh, we, we managed to get, you know, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, literally in the case of, of, of the number of children born out of wedlock in the United States. And it's, it isn't that there's anything wrong with them being born out of wedlock or have anything against them for that or anything against their, 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 their mothers or, their, or, for that matter, their fathers. It's just they're just more likely to wind up poor and more likely to wind up troubled, more likely to wind up having uh, uh, difficulties in life uh, than if they had, you know, two people that cared about them. So it brings me back to some of the things that you wrote about the greatest generation, that your parents had interesting lives that they just kept from you or they didn't put on display, and that they fought for something, they stood for something, and another thing that you point out, when you were growing up, the greatest generation talked to you about going through World War II. There wasn't this In my reticence. case, at least, we had a bunch of, uh, most of the dads on the uh, block um, were combat vets. Maybe it was just happenstance, but I, I never found that the, uh, that the, that the uh, uh, greatest generation was as silent about their war experiences as they're supposed to be now. It's just, you know, you had to ask them the right questions. And kids would ask the right questions, like, how many did you kill? You know? And they go, oh, yeah, well, I'll tell you, there's a machine gun nest, you know. And so, and they, you know. But they didn't ask them the questions like, how did you feel? You know, because they, that generation was not into feelings. It's what got me over pot. You know, pot gives you a lot of feelings. And I thought, why have more feelings than, you, you know, I mean, it makes you sensitive. Why would you want to be more sensitive? <laughs> this world, I can't imagine. But, you know, I, I would also be careful about, you know, an easy characterization of the greatest generation as, like, really standing for something and really uh, uh, with a, the, the, some sort of, uh, of huge patriotism. Remember, it's, it's Kurt Vonnegut that writes mm -hmm. Slaughterhouse-Five, member of the greatest generation, you know. It's Joseph Heller, member of a, the greatest generation, uh, that, that, that writes Catch-22. It's Norman Mailer, member of the greatest generation, who writes The Naked and the Dead, you know. No, those are not pro-war books. You know, those are not like patriotic, patriotic stand fast, uh, don't complain, you know. Um, not the, the caricature that we have of the, uh, we, we make the greatest generation much more simple than they were. You wanted to know them, and I'm sure it's like your children want to know you, or do they? Uh, how do you have that well, conversation? I mean, not at this Does age, they don't. No, you know. I mean, you know, in, in time, maybe maybe they will, but, but who knows, you know. How do you think you will talk about your baby boomer generation, you as representative of one of those 75 million, negotiating, navigating through that, that life? Uh, you know, that's the nice thing about being a baby boomer is you don't have to talk to your kids about it. They hear nothing but, you know. I mean, they got 75 million of us nattering away about the good old days, you know. And so, and, you know, I don't have to say a word. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have no intention of, of talking. I mean, I, I kind of think that that was a little bit of the reticence of uh, some of the, um, the war vets is that, that they, God, there had been just so much, you know, yak and chatter about World War II that they just felt like, you know, wants to go there. Well, uh, you point out that the self-consciousness was the baby boomer's salient trait. The crush, our signal emotion, and intense, our default mode. And what do you think that's left the baby boom generation with? All of these well, see, I think that's a pretty good description of adolescence in general. The thing, you know, the thing is that what makes us different uh, uh, from prior generations, and we'll see 
whether uh, uh, the generations that come after us are, are, are like this or not, but um, is we retained our adolescence. We, we, we kept fighting the battles of adolescence well into our 30s, 40s. Some of us are still fighting them in our, in our 60s. And uh, prior generations kind of, you know, gave up and surrendered to adulthood, and, and we did not. And so um, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, uh, you know, maybe the millennials will grow up to be a very grown-up generation and regard us, you know, as a bunch of immature jerks, over, ugly old immature jerks. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others. P.J. O'Rourke, author of The Baby Boom, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on the New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and The Music Hall in collaboration with Yankee Magazine and River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Rachel Newbar. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Maureen McMurray. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music hall production manager is Jana Morris. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. And you can listen to more author interviews and see photographs from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Be joyful. May your song always be sung and may you stay.